We are continuing this morning in our series of messages in the Gospel of John, the second half of the book where he shifts his focus from bearing witness to the world to uh, focusing on his disciples and this writing theme of abiding in him, uh, staying within the circle of who he is uh, and he in us, uh, that being the key to the life he's calling us into. We're, we're continuing in that. Uh, and I'd like to start out today by asking you to think about something. If I were to ask you what is wrong with the world today, what would you tell me? Some of you might say, where do I start? You might talk about wealth inequality, the ever-increasing gap between the obscenely wealthy and the desperately poor. You might talk about climate change and the destruction of the earth and its natural resources. You might talk about the plight of the powerless women and children and people with disabilities in a world where the powerful rule. I wonder if we were to ask Jesus what he would tell us is wrong with the world. I think today's passage in which Jesus concludes his prayer for his disciples gives us some clues as to what he thought needed fixing in our world. So I've titled today's message, Finding Right in a world of wrong. And we are in John chapter 17. We'll be finishing the chapter, verses 20 through 26. Let's start in verse 20. I am not asking only for these, but also for the ones who will believe in me through their message, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus doesn't only pray for the 11 disciples around him there, and perhaps there were some women in that group as well that are not mentioned in that particular instance, but he had an inner circle of disciples that traveled with him. Uh, He doesn't just pray for them. He very deliberately, at the end of his prayer, focuses his attention on a whole different group of people because what Jesus came to do was not just to affect the lives of the people in the first century who happened to be living at the same time that he arrived. He wasn't there just to fix the issues and problems in the lives of his disciples right then. What Jesus came to do is going to reach back to the dawn of creation and it's going to extend forward to the end of the world and on into eternity. So he doesn't just pray for the people around him right at that moment. He says, I'm not asking just for these but also for the ones who will believe in me through their message, their logos. John has used that word a lot in his gospel. He describes Jesus as the logos, the message of God that was with God in the beginning, that was God, and and that became miraculously flesh and tabernacled, set up his tent among us. It's that very message that the disciples are going to be sharing with others. And he gives them a foretaste of what will be his uh, final instructions to them before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. You've heard of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all the things that I have commanded you. And I am with you always even to the end of the age. 
He gives them a foretaste of that because he's already assuming that they are going to be sharing this message and that because they will be sharing this message, others will come to believe in Jesus as well. So, as he looks beyond his immediate disciples to those who are coming behind through the witness of his own disciples, what does he ask for them? And if you happen to be a person today who has put his trust in Jesus, who has come to believe this message that someone shared with you, Jesus is praying for you. What did he pray for us? He said that they may all, uh, that they all may be one. This is what he asked for us, that we all be brought into perfect unity. What kind of unity? What should this unity look like? Well, it should look like the way Jesus the Son is joined and is united with God the Father. That is the picture of unity he's praying for. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. What is he asking? That they may be in us. That we may participate fully in the unity that exists within the Godhead. The perfect, eternal unity that predates the dawn of time and that will exist forever. Jesus prays that we be brought into that unity. He also indicates a consequence of the Father bringing us into that unity so that the world may believe that you sent me. If we were to ask Christians today across the board, what are we doing to convince the world to believe in Jesus? Uh, The immediate answer of many might be apologetics. We're trying to find reasonable arguments to convince people logically that the gospel is true. That's not how Jesus described it. He said the thing that is going to convince the world to believe that he was sent just as he said he was sent by the Father to redeem the world by giving his life. The the thing that will convince the world to believe is this unity. I think in 2,000 years of history, the church has not succeeded very well in surrendering to this vision of Christ. Church history is sad because it is plagued with wars. It is plagued with torture and death and oppression in the name of the gospel. Think back to the era of the Reformation where uh, Christians or people began to turn to Scripture and found Christ and encountered Him in such a powerful way that they realized we've been doing it wrong. We've let our own traditions build up around the story and the gospel and it's become something that it wasn't meant to be and we need to correct course. We need to reform and the church refused to hear call to reform and uh, people broke away and what resulted were a couple of hundred years of wars in Europe between Christians of one flavor and Christians of another flavor 
And you might say, no, it was the Roman Catholic Church that lost its way. And they were the ones who were killing people and torturing and making these public spectacles of how horribly they could kill another person because uh, they deemed them to be heretics. But the reformers were killing people too. If you go to Switzerland today, you will find a statue of Zwingli, the great Reformation leader, with his battle axe. During the Reformation, within the Reformation, there were Christians who took seriously this call. Let's go back to Scripture and see what it says. And they did that and they said, you know what? This thing we're doing with baptism where we get a baby who's just been born and we sprinkle some water on their head and say, boom, you're, you're good with God. That's not the way the Bible describes it. The Bible describes it as a step of commitment to Christ where you are making a public announcement that you have surrendered yourself to Christ and been redeemed by him. And the word means to submerge, not just to sprinkle. And some reformers within the Reformation started baptizing through immersion. You know what the other reformers did to them? They killed them. They would drown them to make a mockery of their, oh, you want to be submerged? I'll submerge you. Is it any surprise that after a couple of hundred years of this, philosophers in Europe started thinking, maybe we don't need God at all. Maybe the world doesn't need God to explain things. And they started finding ways to figure out ways to construe a worldview that cuts God out of it completely because when the people in this world were looking at the church, they could not see Christ. They could not see the one the Father sent to redeem. All they saw was war and bloodshed. 200 years later, that's the world we live in. You might say, well, yeah, during the Reformation period, people were very uh, prone to war and all that. We've, we've come such a long way. We're a church that gives to the Southern Baptist Convention because we believe in the importance of mission work and sending missionaries across the world. Would you say if you looked at the history of our denomination over your lifetime that unity is the defining factor? Unity, people think of Southern Baptist and the first thing they think is, boy, that's a united people. That's a people that welcomes and loves. I have talked to people who refuse to go to my church simply because they will not go to a Southern Baptist church. We still today suffer from this disunity to the point that I can talk about things with recent things within our own denomination a woman who has served the church and written material to encourage people to study the word of God and has discipled many people through years is invited to preach in her church one Sunday and all of a sudden she's Satan himself come to rob the pulpit from all the men A report, an independent report is made to investigate problems of sexual abuse within our denomination. And when the results of that report come out, uh, a person that's a prominent leader in our denomination says, we need to repent and confront the reality of this. And he is crucified as an, an attacker of the gospel. 
I don't think we've done any better today in surrendering to Christ's prayer for us, his vision of who we are meant to be. When did we decide that we could build church around ourselves? When did we decide that the church is here to be what I want it to be and that I can build it around my own preferences and my own socio-political inclinations and my own opinions? When did we forget that Jesus, who was glorious, God Almighty, emptied himself of his glory and took on the form not of a king but of a servant? That Jesus came and knelt at our feet and took towel and wash basin to wash our feet. That he came not to be served but to be served. When did we forget that's what we're being called into? When did it all all become about pride and parading ourselves and demeaning others? When did we decide that just because I think I'm right about this particular matter and this other Christian is wrong about this particular matter, that gives me justification to be hateful to that other person? That Christian for whom also Christ shed his blood on the cross? Jesus prayed for unity, not not any kind of unity that the world knows. Let me tell you why the church has not surrendered to the unity Christ is calling us to. It's because we want to build it the way the world builds unity. You know how the world builds unity? By consensus, by everybody agreeing. You know when you find unity in the world around us? It's when everybody agrees about something. You get a a bunch of skinheads together who hate other races and who think they're oppressed because they're white, and boom, you've got unity. You get a bunch of people who have the same opinion, the same idea, and the same interest together, and unity happens by itself. To paraphrase Jesus, even the Gentiles do that. That's not what he's praying for. He's praying for a unity the world cannot explain away. Is it possible for a Christian who is never on time to love and be loved by a Christian who thinks that if you are on time, you are late? Is it possible for a Christian who never responds to texts to be in unity with a Christian who thinks that's horrendous and the worst thing you could possibly ever do? Let me up the stakes. Can a close the borders Christian be united with an open the borders to everyone Christian? Can a pro-choice Christian be united with a pro-life Christian? Can a Christian who voted for the Republican candidate at the elections be united with a Christian who voted for the Democratic candidate? Some would say no. I think Jesus pleaded that it would happen. That we would be one. Jesus didn't ask for us to be perfect. He didn't ask for us to be right. He asked for us to be one. And here's the mistake we make. We assume that we can reserve unity until you get it right. 
until you get your act together. When did you get your act together? When were you perfectly righteous? Not a one of us qualifies. What gives us the right to exclude others who simply are not in the same place we are? And you know what? Sometimes we think we're right and we're the ones that are wrong. If we wait until we all get it right before we're willing to participate in the unity Christ is calling us to, we will never know it. We will never find it. And sadly, until we surrender to it, the world, when it looks at us, will be incapable of seeing the Son whom the Father sent in love to redeem it. Jesus took for granted that we would share his message with the world. He said that our unity would be what would cause the world to believe in Jesus. Let me ask you, how has the unity you share with other disciples caused others to believe in Jesus? Let's keep reading verse 22. And I have given to them the glory which you have given to me, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may come to be made perfect into one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them just as you loved me. Now the unity I'm describing is not just hard, it's impossible. I mentioned pro-life or pro-choice. You know the reason that issue is so divisive? Because it's a matter of life and death. The stakes could not be any higher. And people have tremendously strong feelings on both sides of this issue. Are we saved by having a, a proper understanding of everything? Are we saved by being right? Are we saved by behaving right? No, the gospel is very clear. We are saved by Jesus. We're not saved by anything we do. We are saved by a person. And the Christian life is a call to discipleship, to uh, delve into following after Jesus. And the life of faith is a hard journey. Because we have constructed all these ideas and all these things about who we are and all these patterns of behavior and we're wrong. We're, we're wrong on just about every possible count and the journey between where we begin and where Jesus has to take us to arrive at perfection is light years. So it's a hard process. And constantly we're running into events in our life that shake what we think we know. And we have to constantly reevaluate everything we think we know in light of the Christ who is in us and is redeeming us and drawing us to himself. And we are constantly in this process of transformation together. Unity is that safe space that allows us to grow into the fullness of Christ. It is not something we arrive at once we're perfect. So how do we get there if it's so hard? Well, God has to give it to us. That's why Jesus prayed for it. We can't fabricate this. 
That's the reason it's irrefutable evidence of the truth of the gospel because it is something only God can accomplish. When the world sees that, forget about your logical arguments. They cannot answer that. What do we need? We need God to make this happen. Jesus talks about that. I have given to them the glory which you have given to me. Jesus received the glory of God the Father, and he has shared that with his disciples. What is the uh, evidence of having received the glory of God? That they may be one just as Jesus and the Father are one. Unity is evidence that we have surrendered to what Jesus is giving to us. The glory of God is evident in that. And this is uh, what he wants, that we be one, not in some other way, but exactly the way Jesus the Son and Jesus the Father are one. That's the degree of commitment to one another. That's the degree of of remaining together that he wants to see in us. The very unity that binds the Godhead together. And this is what, for Jesus, constitutes perfection. He says that they may be made perfect into one. Unity is the end goal. This perfect bond of love. And it's not surprising if love, if God is love, not just God is loving, God has love. For example, God is not wrath. He has wrath. But that isn't the core identifying factor of who he is. But God is love. Everything about him is love. So it shouldn't surprise us then that when he has accomplished in us perfectly what he intends, that the result will be the perfect bond of loving unity that exists within the Godhead itself. And again, he repeats, that is necessary so that the world may know that the Father sent Jesus and that he loved them just as he loved Jesus. Notice this that Jesus said here. He says that the Father has loved them just as he has loved Jesus. You have loved them just as you have loved me. Now, I can see the Father having a perfect bond of loving unity with the Son because the Son never got anything wrong. He was absolutely delightful and worthy of admiration and uh, easy to love. I can see the Father loving him perfectly and eternally. But Jesus says that the Father has loved us exactly the same way he has loved the Son. You see, this is the model. This is how unity is going to happen the way Jesus is describing it. We don't reserve that love and unity until you are perfect. We give it up front. Jesus says that the Father loved, past tense, loved them as you loved me. This isn't something we are going to someday reach. At some point, the Father will love us perfectly the way he loves the Son. No, he's already extended that love to us and has invited us into that perfect unity in himself. He's not waiting for us to earn it or to be worthy of it. Our unity is made possible 
by the glory that Jesus has shared with us. Let me ask you, how have you allowed Jesus to bring you to perfect unity with others who have believed in him? Let's finish verses 24 through 26. Father, those you have given me, I want that where I am also those may be with me so that they may see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the cosmos. Righteous Father, even though the world has not known you, I have known you. And these have known that you sent me and I made known to them your name and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus isn't just looking for us to behave. He's not just looking for us to keep his laws. He wants us to be where he is. He wants intimacy. He wants closeness. He wants participation. He wants a relationship with us. And he wants to draw us into himself. Into the very unity that binds the Godhead together. Jesus is about to die and rise from the grave and return to the right hand of the Father. He says, I want my disciples here with me. I want them to be full participants in this love that has bound us together, Father, before the cosmos even began. Jesus wants us to be drawn into this eternal bond of love that exists in God himself. And it predates the foundation of the cosmos. He describes the Father as righteous. Earlier in the prayer he described him as holy. Righteous Father. In other words, Father who is uh, defined or characterized only by what is right. Think of that. When you hear the word righteousness, what you're talking about is what is right. You're talking about rightness as opposed to wrongness. Father who is right in every possible aspect. You know, there is nothing about the Father you could change that would result in an improvement. He's perfectly right in every sense. Now the world hasn't known this. The world doesn't know the Father. The world is not characterized by what is right. The world is characterized by a heartbreaking mess of right and wrong. And there is wrong everywhere. It, it's on everything. It has tainted relationships and institutions and all kinds of things. And it's, it's seeped into the very bones of this world. The world doesn't know righteousness. But guess what? Jesus says, I know. I have known you. And guess what? That's what I'm giving to my disciples. I am bringing them to a knowledge of what is right. That can be found nowhere in this world. But only in you, righteous Father. Not only have I made known your name to them, but I'm going to continue to do so. And very clearly, Jesus is saying, what he's inviting us into is not a one and done thing. It is a process. And he's in it for the long haul. He will continue to reveal to us the rightness of God. Do you remember Romans when we were 
working our way through the book of Romans, how Paul defined the gospel. Through the gospel, the righteousness, the rightness of God is being revealed from faith and back into faith. Jesus here is saying the exact same thing. That our invitation to enter into this uh, bond of unity and love is nothing less than an invitation to be brought into knowing what is right. But it is a process. Not only has Jesus made it known to us, he continues to make it known. So that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is revealing to us what is right. And what does it look like when we have surrendered to what is right? We are characterized by the very unity that is evident in the Godhead itself. That is the proof to the world around us. Jesus came to reveal to us the right that now is found only in God. He said this right is all about love and unity. How much of the Father's right have you allowed Jesus to reveal in your life? What is God's ultimate goal for us? What would perfect righteousness look like if it were implemented in our lives? Sometimes it seems like wrong is all we know. Like we can't even begin to fathom what is truly right in all this mess that surrounds us. But God is righteous. There's not a single thing about him that is wrong. As Jesus prayed for those who were going to come to faith in him through the centuries down to our day and beyond, he outlined what is his goal for us. He wants to bring us into the perfect loving unity that exists within the Godhead so that we who believe in him are made perfectly one. As we surrender to this unity in love, Jesus reveals to us the righteous Father, restoring to us what is right. And as the world around us sees the very hand of God at work in our lives, they know that God has loved them in Jesus Christ and is inviting them into this circle. you this morning have you surrendered your life to this ultimate goal of Jesus for it we're about to sing a song and this is the time where we try to provide time in our worship for you to respond to God's word we have some uh, blinds set up at the back and a, an area for just a little bit of privacy and as we're singing this song, I want to ask you, if, if you don't know Jesus, the, the Jesus I'm talking about, who came to bring right back to you, I want to ask you today to just surrender your life to him. There will be people there at either side, and they can help you pray and ask Jesus to take your life and to rescue you. Maybe you already know Jesus, and there's something he's reminded you about that you need to correct. You've been doing it wrong. 
and you need to repent and make it right. If that's you this morning, come and let them pray with you. Maybe you just need prayer for whatever reason. We're also opening the altar up here up front. If you just want to come and kneel and pray, take advantage of this time of response. Let's all stand. Come while we sing.